You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? I'll take it. Right on. So, cool. Uh, If you're here and you're new, my name is David Dowdy. I am the teaching pastor here. It's nice to see you. I do see some new people. What's up, Dan? Yeah, I just met Dan like two minutes ago. He's got a lot of tattoos. Good looking guy. I don't know him, but we're going to get to know each other later. You're the first person, new person I've ever awkwardly called out in front of the congregation. So everyone go say hi to Dan later. Um, it'll be good and awkward. You'll think you're in a cult. It's going to be awesome. Um, but yeah, if you're new here, one, we're not a cult. That was a joke. Uh, two, we are continuing our series this evening. We're right in the middle of a series called Bible Stories. And it's subtitled Christ in the New Testament. And what we're doing is we're taking a look at how Jesus... Uh, said in, in the Gospel of Luke, and I believe one other Gospel, I'm blanking at the moment, where he says, all Scripture points to me. I believe it's Luke and John. He makes references to all of the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament, points to Jesus. Um, in Colossians and Hebrews, uh, two books in the New Testament, they also say that everything in the Old Testament was just a type and shadow of the one who was to come. Right. So everything is about Jesus, everything points to him. Um, so what we're doing is we're looking at the most famous Old Testament stories uh, and seeing how they all foreshadow and point to Christ, or seeing if Jesus himself actually shows up in those stories in a pre-incarnate form. Uh, so a lot of us, myself included, uh, are relearning these stories, right? Because a lot of times we have this whitewashed, very sterilized view of the Old Testament and all the Bible stories. My favorite example is Noah's Ark, right? Where it's about this cute story where you know Noah rounds up all these animals, but in reality it's a story about how God drowned the entire world for sin, right? So it's not exactly like a tuck-your-kid-in-bedtime story that you'd want to tell uh, if you're going to tell it accurately and biblically. So so we're kind of relearning these accounts. Um, And we've also been coming to realize throughout this series that these accounts are not accounts of great men doing great things. Uh, Every one of these stories that we're looking at in this series, they are accounts of God's grace towards sinners and His power to take wretched people and transform them into new creations who are instruments for his work and his will. So that's really what the whole story arc of the Bible is. is Man sucks and then God comes in and transforms them and changes them and ultimately saves them. So tonight uh, we're going to be looking at the story of Jacob's life. You guys familiar with Jacob? Anyone? Isaac's son? right? Abraham's grandson? We could go on with the family. It'd be awkward anyway. I thought about talking about nephews. Um, but tonight we're going to be looking at a big portion of Jacob's life, right? I'm going to kind of try uh, for like the first 10 minutes or so to give us like a 10,000 foot view of Jacob and who he was and what some of the high points of his life is. Um, but it's right off the rip. Jacob is the son of Isaac. Like I said, he's the grandson of Abraham. Um, we remember a few weeks ago we talked about Abraham and how God made these promises to him. I'm going to you know, turn you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a plot of land uh, in the Middle East. I'm going to uh, bless all of the whole, like I'm going to bless the nations through you. So he's promising that the Messiah, Jesus, is going to come through Abraham's line. All right? So Jacob being his grandson, Jacob is in that line of promise. Right? And, and he's going to end up being one of the patriarchs of our faith. Right? One of like, the big pillars that we look back to in the Old Testament. Um, but he wasn't always that way. All right, we're going to see that very shortly, that Jacob was a sinner in need of the grace of God. Um, more specifically, Jacob was an arrogant man who needed humbled. Um, that's going to become very apparent to us. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at Jacob's life and how he lived his own way, doing what he wanted to do, how he lived in his own strength instead of seeking the will and direction of God, and then how one night and in one situation God transformed Jacob into Israel. Right? Israel, just so you know, Israel is someone's name. Right? A lot of times we look at the nation of Israel and that's all legit, but it's because they trace their lineage back to this one guy. Right? So that he had 12 sons and became the tribes of Israel because Israel was their dad. It's a little fun thing a lot of us don't think about very often. Right? So Jacob gets turned into Israel. God renames him after one evening in one situation. Um, so really what we're going to be focusing in on after we look at this 10,000 foot view is Jacob's wrestling match with God. Right? Like, there were so many WWE, like, memes that I wanted to use to start this sermon. Like, Autumn found this one. It wasn't a WWE meme. Um, but it was a picture of this angel uh, wrestling with Jacob. And it said, like, the caption at the bottom, it said, And the angel said to Jacob, Why dost thou keep hitting thyself? 
And Jacob could not stop because the angel was hitting him with his own arms. And I thought that was hilarious. Like I was like cackling like a schoolgirl when I was seeing that. Um, <laughs> but in this sermon, uh, what I want us to focus on um, is how Jacob lived apart from seeking God's direction. Um, how, how he handled every situation in his own way. And ultimately how God humbled him and broke him down to a place where he realized his need for God. And my prayer this past week um, has been that we would humble ourselves, both believers and unbelievers here, because I know we're, we're a mixed congregation, um, that we would humble ourselves before God has to step in and humble us, whether that be he humbles us in this life and causes us to repent, or he humbles us in the next life, because the Bible says that come the end of time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we will be humbled ultimately someday, whether it's willfully or whether it's by God's forcing us to admit that and then casting us into hell. But we all will be humbled someday. So my prayer is that we would become humbled now in this life so that God would exalt us in the next. Um, And also for Christians, right? Those of us who have already began to submit ourselves to Christ's lordship. I pray that we would humble ourselves before God even more because God is glorified not just in our submission, but in our glad submission to his rule. Uh, I heard a, a saying one time, and I think this is good. It said, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the humble and those who are about to be, <laughs> right? So that's usually how this works uh, whenever we look at the Bible and, and, and even in our own lives. Um, we're either humbled before God or God will humble us. Um, so let's start with talking about Jacob's life. Um, just, again, that 10,000-foot view. Let's talk about this for a minute before we get into chapter 32 of Genesis. Right? Just laying that out there. If you're a Bible flipper, feel free. Um, We're going to root down in in Genesis chapter 32. We're actually going to read the whole chapter here in just a little while. Um, But Jacob's story starts in Genesis 25, right? good place to start is the beginning of Jacob's life, whenever he's born. If you go to Genesis 25, you'd see that there. Uh, But Jacob's not uh, not an only child by any stretch of the imagination. He's actually a twin, right? His brother's name is Esau. And uh, Esau, just fun fact, he's a really hairy guy, which I always like vibe with Esau because I don't know if any of you guys like see this, this monstrosity that my wife has to put up with. It's horrible. Um, yeah, so I vibe with Esau real hard. Uh, but yeah, so Jacob's born uh, a twin to his brother, or has a brother named Esau. And uh, Jacob actually, the Bible tells us, came out of the womb grabbing Esau's heel. Right, So Esau is the older of the two twins. He came out first, and Jacob comes out grabbing his heel, which is actually why he was named Jacob. Jacob means heel grabber. Um, yeah, like, yeah, like it's, thank you, Holly. Like, it's legit, right? Like his name, his name means heel grabber, which is actually uh, like an he, a Hebrew idiom for he cheats. If you grab someone by the heel, you deceive, you cheat, you're a trickster, which is a really accurate name for Jacob. He cheats. Um, we're going to see that here in a minute, but what I think is really shows the grace of God here before we go any further. Knowing what kind of a person that Jacob is going to be for a season of his life, God chose him anyway to be a patriarch. God chose him anyway that the Messiah was going to come through his lineage and not Esau's. Genesis 25, verse 23, And the Lord said to her, his, um, their mother, Rachel, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So God, I mean, and some of you think we're going to go to Romans 9 here. You can settle down, right? That's another sermon for another time. But, uh, but yeah, so God has chosen Jacob over Esau for the lineage of the Messiah. Right? So God's chosen him. Jacob's been aptly named. He cheats. So Jacob, the cheater, the deceiver, the heel grabber. He goes on, if we, if we keep reading his story, he goes on to cheat Esau. Right? He takes advantage of his brother Esau. And Esau's an ungodly man. Uh, we could talk about that if some of you want to know why later. But Esau's not a godly man. But nevertheless, Jacob tricks his brother into selling his birthright for a meal. Right? So Esau had some firstborn rights that he would have. And like I said, Jacob tricks him, um, gets him to trade his birthright for some food. I think he was really taking advantage of Esau because Esau says that he was going to perish from hunger. And Jacob says, well, I could feed you, but you, know, you can give me your birthright and we'll make it an even trade. Um, but then not, not only does he do that, right? So he's a trickster. Um, a little while later in their lives, Jacob actually straight up steals a blessing intended for Esau, right? Isaac, uh, their father, told, told Esau, um, I want you to go... Hunt some, hunt some animals down, make some food, come back to me, give me the food, and I'm going to give you a blessing. Um, and 
Jacob's mother, right, Jacob and Esau's mom, Rachel, who favored Jacob, overhears this and then goes and gets Jacob and says, hey, let's come up with a plan. I want you to get this blessing instead. And Jacob goes along with the plan in an ungodly fashion. And he steals this blessing by disguising himself as Esau. Remember how I said Esau was hairy? Uh, Jacob says he was a smooth man, which I don't know what that's like, but I imagine it's cool. Um, but, but Jacob says that he, he's a smooth man, so what he does is he takes goat skins and puts them on the back of his neck and on the backs of his hands, which tells me Esau is ridiculously hairy. And he goes into Isaac, and Isaac is blind, right? So he says, the voice sounds like Jacob, but you're telling me you're Isaac. And he says, come here, and he, you know, he feels his hands and feels the back of his neck, and he says, well, you know, you're hairy, so apparently you're Esau. Um, and then he gives, he gives uh, Jacob Esau's blessing, right? So not only is he a little bit of a trickster, but he's a straight-up liar. He's a deceiver. He's a manipulator. And he gets the firstborn blessing through deception. Esau then gets really upset, and he says, you know, I will comfort myself with the thought that I will kill Jacob. Right? So he decides, I'm going to murder my brother. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll see uh, fratricide being a common theme in Genesis. Um, but he decides, I'm going to kill my brother. Um, and, and you guys need to remember that. This is going to be important whenever we get to the text later. So Esau wants Jacob dead. So Rachel, their mother, overhears Esau saying this, and then, he sent, and then she sends Jacob to live with his uncle Laban in a place called Paddan Aram. And on his way to Laban's house, his uncle Laban, uh, Jacob stops in a place called Haran to sleep. All right, so this all come together in the middle. It's hanging there with me. He stops in a place called Haran to sleep, and there God gave him a dream. Anyone ever heard the story of Jacob's ladder? Right? Yeah, some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, and, and God gives him a dream there where, we, where he sees this ladder um, or staircase, right? It might be better for us to understand it that way. A staircase going from heaven to earth, and God is there with him, and there are angels ascending and descending on this staircase, and Led Zeppelin's playing in the background. And thank you. Um, and, and, and God then speaks to Jacob and makes the Abrahamic promise to Jacob. Keep in mind, Jacob's not a good guy at this point. He's fleeing because of the deception in his life, how he's been a deceiver and a liar. And God makes a promise to him anyway. And he, and he says, you know, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless the nations through you. Your descendants are going to be as, as numerous as the dust on the earth. Out of grace, God's make, God makes this promise to a sinner. And then Jacob says this in chapter 28, verses 20 and 22. So God makes this promise, then Jacob says this. Says, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God, if, or it's conditional statement, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all of you, or and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. I wanted to draw that out for a minute. I want us to see this. Jacob does not yet worship, love, or follow God. He may listen to him occasionally, but he does not love God. I think that at best, Jacob has nominal faith. And we'll get into what that means here in a little while. But he's just a believer in name, right? He believes Yahweh is God. That's about the end of it. Right? He says, if God does this, then he will be my God. But that means he's not my God yet. And then at Laban's, right, so Jacob finally goes on from Haran to, uh, to Paddan Aram. I know I'm using a lot of weird words. But he gets, uh, he gets to his uncle Laban's house. And there he works for 14 years uh, to, in order to marry Rachel and Leah. You guys know what I'm talking about? Rachel, I guess, is this smoking hot Hebrew fox. And Leah is cross-eyed, apparently. is really sad. Um, anyway, God actually ends up blessing Leah a bit more than Rachel, because God says, says that God saw Leo was hated. So that's kind of a cool thing for us to keep in mind here. God has mercy on people who are hated. Um, but Laban, or he works for 14 years for Laban in order to marry Rachel and Leah. Um, those are Laban's daughters. It's a little bit Kentuckian for me, but whatever. Uh, Jacob later has a, a conflict with Laban, right? Uh, just conflicts, I should say, where I'll boil it down to this. Laban cheats Jacob out of stuff. Jacob then, in turn, cheats Laban out of stuff for paying evil for evil. Um, again, not a good guy, not a godly man. And then Jacob goes on to have 12 kids by four women. He could be from Sayota County. So he goes on to have 12 kids by four women. And then... After a while, he grows to dislike 
and fear Laban because of their conflicts and how much uh, Jacob has prospered and how much Laban um, hasn't. And he decides to leave Laban's house and take his family away without telling Laban that they're leaving. Right? And the Bible actually says he tricked Laban in doing this. But Laban catches up with him, and they eventually settle stuff, and everything's good. Uh, I want to boil it all down to this, because I know this is kind of a a lot, and we're going to get into Genesis 32. I promise I don't just preach from the hip. We look at the text. Um, Jacob is not a good guy. Notice how many times I talk about him lying and cheating and deceiving and and all this stuff that he did. He's not a good guy. You don't want Jacob as your friend. Right? He's a conniving person. He's a trickster. He's a manipulator. If you have something that he wants, he will find a way to take it from you. you know, he'll be underhanded in order to get his way, just like he did with Esau and Laban. Um, Jacob is not godly. Jacob is a nominal believer at best. Right? He does not love or worship God. And now, God is sending him back home to Isaac. Right? He's sending him back home where Esau has been waiting for about 20 years now to kill him. Right? We all know grudges tend to only get stronger over time. Right? So Esau wants him dead. Right? So like I said, God told him to go home, and God also graciously promised this sinner that he was going to take care of him. Right? So again, God's gracious towards sinners. And then this wicked man, we're going to see by the end of this chapter that we're going to read, this wicked man ends up becoming one of the patriarchs of the faith after one evening alone with God, which tells us that, that there's hope for us. No matter what you've done, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, there's hope for you, right? God, God's not in the business of saving perfect people, right? Because those people don't exist, right? So that means there's hope for us here. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into Genesis chapter 32. Father, I thank you for your word Holy Spirit, please uh, use me as an instrument to to preach your gospel, uh, to point people to Christ, to point out um, our own arrogance and our own uh, just delusional self-sufficiency. God, help us to see that we are deficient in everything and that Christ is sufficient in everything. Holy Spirit, draw someone to you. Break the hearts of believers and unbelievers alike. Do a sovereign work here or everything is in vain. I ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Cool, so let's, let's get into it. Genesis chapter 32. Let's do it to it. Also, if you're new here, there's blue Bibles in the backs of the pews. Take one home with you. That's our gift to you. Um, verse 1. Jacob went on his way. Right, he's heading back home. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place uh, Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them this. Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I, might, I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. (laughs) Right? So what what he's doing is he's going back home, and he tells his servants, Hey, I want you guys to go on ahead of me, tell Esau, right? Call Esau Jacob's Lord, right? Not like he's calling him his God, but like he's like, Tell him that I'm his servant, and he's my Lord, and tell him I'm coming. And they come back, and they say, We told him, man. Like, we told him, and he's coming, uh, but he's coming with 400 guys, right? This is a war party. Right? Like, Esau is incredibly angry with you, Jacob. He is planning on killing you. Right? And Jacob thinks he's going to flatter his brother. Verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will, will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, 
from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob freaks out. I'm going to make this argument. Feel free to disagree with me after the service. We can talk about this. I think in a crisis... He cries out to God and says, God, save me from this. But notice, he says, you're the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. He has not yet called him my God. I would make that argument. I think that Jacob is crying out in crisis, realizing that he's in a lot of trouble. right? But again, I don't think he's converted yet. I still think he's just as ungodly as he was in the beginning of his life. He's asking God, please deliver me because I'm afraid of my brother. Not because I've sinned against you, but save my skin right now, please. Verse 13, so he, Jacob, so he stayed there that night, and from what he he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Right? So he cries out to God in crisis, but just in case this doesn't work out well and God isn't going to come through for him on this, he says, I'm going to butter Esau up. It was normal back then to send a little bit of a gift, but like even by like their cultural standards, this is extravagant. Right? Like he's sending like hundreds and hundreds of animals on ahead to Esau in order to butter him up, essentially, so that he won't kill him. So again, he's, he's still manipulating. Verse 22. The same night, and this is what we want to focus on here. The same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. It's a river. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched Jacob's hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Kind of a strange verse to end with, but sometimes the dietary laws in the Old Testament have a legitimate point. That was meant to be a remembrance thing for them. Um, Anyway, up to this point, up to this point that that this day happens where Jacob gets to meet God face to face, and I would argue it's a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ that he wrestles with. Up to this point, Jacob has been living his whole life as a cheat and a liar and a manipulator. Right? God has been... It's the grace of God. God has been so good to him in spite of that. And he has allowed Jacob to prosper. Right? He's made Jacob incredibly wealthy. He's rescued him a couple of different times. But nevertheless, even though Jacob has prospered and all this, Jacob has done everything in his life by his own strength, in his own cunning, in his own way. He has manipulated, manipulated his way through his entire life in an ungodly manner. Every time that there's a problem, he says, like... I'll handle this very underhandedly. And I think that this is often us too, maybe in a more general sense. Right? Like we often try 
We, we live trying to fix every problem in our lives without looking to God in Scripture or seeking Him in prayer, right? Especially unbelievers that are here, right? But believers too, so I'm, kind of, I'm hitting on both of us this evening. We, we try to live our lives without looking to God in Scripture, seeing how would He have me do this, or seeking Him in prayer, saying what is His will in this situation? What we do is we say, I'll, I'll just handle this how I see fit, and I'll go with whatever I think is the best course of action, or whatever the world thinks is the best course of action, right? Whatever the latest BuzzFeed video tells me I should do or think about this, uh, right? And this could manifest itself in, in a few different ways, right? And these are, just, these are just meant to be just some things to get your brain going, right? So, like, just think on this and how this applies to you, that you're trying to fix things your own way and your own strength. This could be dealing with an enemy, Right Where you decide, again, without consulting God in Scripture, without consulting God in prayer, I'm just going to get even with this punk. Right? Like, I'm, I'm just going to get him back. Whatever he did to me, I'm going to do back to him. Or I'm just going to cut ties with this person in my family or this person at work or this person at school or whatever. I'm just going to cut ties with them and cut them completely out of, my ho- out of my life, out of my house, and have nothing to do with them whatsoever. Or I'm just going to slander them. Right? Like I'm going to act like everything's cool to their face, but I'm just going to just ruin their reputation behind their back, whatever it may be. Or you know you're going through school and you say, well, how should I approach this? Like a bunch of work that I have to do. Uh, cheat. Right? I know that's what I did a lot. Cheat or pay someone to do your work, copy or be lazy and just put everything off instead of doing the godly thing and working as if you're working for Christ. I'll do the lazy thing. I'll do the easy thing. Whenever it comes to gaining wealth, instead of being diligent in my labor and praying that God would increase me as he sees fit, what do we do? We say, I want to get as much money as I can, so I'm going to do what I think is good. And that's ignoring poor people, ignoring people in need um, in order to hoard my wealth, doing something illegal or underhanded in order to gain more, uh, working under the table, whatever it might be. Uh, With parenting, right, instead of doing the the biblical thing, which is disciplining your children, you know, spareth the rod, spoil the child, that proverb that my mom read too much, um, (laughs) <laughs> right, doing the parenting thing where we say, you know, I want to do the easy thing, right? I don't want to discipline my children. I don't want to train them up in the way of the, world, in the, way of the Lord that they might not depart from. I want to do the easy thing and just kind of let them go about life. Considering social and moral issues, I just want to go with what the majority says. Again, doing the easy thing. Right, so for believers, this can manifest itself in a lot of ways where we don't consult the God of Scripture and we don't pray to Him and say, how do I handle this? But we say, I'm just going to figure this out, and I'm just going to fumble my way through it, and it's all going to work out for the best because I'm going to do it my way. Or maybe you're trying to live in your own strength in the ultimate way. Unbelievers, I'm looking at you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're not repentant of your sin and put your faith in Christ, this is for you. Where you look to yourself, and you look to your own good works, or you look to a false religion in order to be made right with God instead of faith in Christ. That's the epitome of living in your own strength. That I will reconcile myself to God. I will justify myself in God's eyes by letting my good outweigh my bad. It's false. You can't undo the bad you've done. If God's a holy, righteous judge like He is, like the Bible says He is, you're going to hell. You need a substitute. You need a Savior. You don't need to do better. On your best day, your righteousness is filthy rags. So you look to that instead of consulting God and seeing how God would have you to respond to what he has already done in Christ crucified in your place and raised from the dead in order to save you, which is repentance and faith. But whatever it may be, I'm just hitting general things. Whatever it may be, living in your own strength, I would define this way. Living a life and making decisions devoid of seeking the will, rule, and commands of God. That's what I mean by living in your own strength. This is what Jacob did. Jacob didn't give a thought to God. He was going to handle everything his way. Thought he didn't need direction from God. Or for that matter, he didn't need God to be his God. Remember, if God does this, then he will be my God. Right? So like him being my God is optional. Which leads us to Jacob's nominal faith in God. All right, so let's get real here for a minute. Let's explain this and let's, let's try to apply this. Whenever I say nominal, hear me, especially if you've been in church your whole life. When I say nominal, I mean in name only. That he was a believer in name only, not in actions, not in life. 
So consider this. Jacob was circumcised at eight days old, just like God told, him, told Abraham and Isaac to do to their kids. So Jacob was circumcised, just like a lot of us have been baptized. He, he believed that Yahweh, right, or the Lord, all caps, that's what that is in, in, in actual Hebrew. He believed that Yahweh was the only God. He had been given promises by God, but he does not love God. Right? Jacob viewed God as an optional addition to his life. Right? God gets me what I want. He's a very handy God to have around when I need him. Like I said, Genesis 28, if, then. If God does, then he'll be my God. For, for Jacob, God was a means to an end. When, when he did think about God, it was only to use him for his purposes. And I would argue, when he obeyed God, it was only because God had promised to do something for him. Just laying that out there. Which, that thought makes me ask this question. So hear me. How many of you view God as a a celestial bellhop in the words of R.C. Sproul? What I mean by that is he's your errand runner in the sky. How many of you view God like that? That he's only around to get me out of trouble whenever I'm in crisis or to do something for me? I'll do the rest, actually. I can take it from here, Lord, once you've pulled me out of my own, like my own like destruction that I, pull, I put myself into. Once you pull me out, I'll handle it from here. I don't need you for anything else. Is your faith merely a nominal faith? Where you're a Christian in name only? That you were baptized, that you said the sinner's prayer, which is not in the Bible. You said that whenever you were seven years old at like a youth group experience and you cried real hard and everyone's saying friends are friends forever. And that was about the end of that because your life hasn't changed since then. Is your faith nominal? Or is it genuine? Jacob's was nominal. Jacob thought God exists and he is the only God, but I'm going to live my life my way and only come to him for help. I don't pray, I don't worship him, I don't meditate on his word, I don't strive to live in obedience to him, I don't love him, I have no gratitude towards him. So what does he do? He lives as if God is not God. This is the number one thing that's plaguing the church. Just laying that out there. There's people who profess to be Christians but are only Christians in name. They are, they are unregenerate. Their hearts are the same as, as someone who's never heard of Christ. They've not been born again. But at this point in Jacob's life, God was only Abraham and Isaac's God. Jacob was still unconverted and therefore in his sins. He wasn't, he wasn't, I can't stress that enough, he's unconverted. Had Jacob died, he would have perished under the wrath of God in hell. Consider that for a minute. Have you been born again? Have you been converted by God? The fact that Jacob's faith was nominal and that God was Abraham's God and Isaac's God, but not yet Jacob's God... And the fact that had he died, but by God's grace he didn't, he would have went to hell. This is a strong reminder to us that the God of your father, if he's a Christian, the God of your father, the God of your friends, the God of your family, the God of your church, is of no eternal help to you if he is not indeed your God. And he will not be fooled. He will save his people and only his people people who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, period. But Jacob was arrogant to think that he didn't really need God or his blessing. Think about the arrogance there. I don't need God. He's optional. He's just here to do stuff for me, even though he's the creator and I'm the creation. Right? Like, stupid. Jacob needed humbled is what he needed, and God was going to do it to him. God was determined to humble Jacob. So God tells Jacob to go back home to Isaac. Right? So let's think about this. Esau is there. He has vowed to kill Jacob. What is God doing? This is amazing to me. I, I, it took me like until Friday night to catch this. God is placing Jacob in a situation where his cunning cannot save him any, anymore. Everything that he has relied on in the past to get him through his problems, failing now because revenge is stronger than flattery and gifts, is it not? God is, God is breaking him, and Jacob is slowly starting to realize this. So in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 32, he cries out to God uh, in a crisis prayer. And I would argue, maybe, maybe he's trying to manipulate God in this prayer. I don't know. But it kind of looks like that that would fit in with the rest of Jacob's life. 
Because in that prayer, it's not God, my God, rescue me, deliver me. No, it's God, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, or God of Isaac, not Jacob. That would defeat the point I'm trying to make. God still is not called my God. God is still not Jacob's God. But Jacob is coming to realize slowly that he needs for God to rescue him. But it's funny, he's still holding on to the idea that he can fix things himself, right? Like he knows, right? So he's crying out, I know only God can rescue me from this, but I'm still going to send a bunch of animals on to Esau and try to go back about how I've always done things and try to fix it myself one last time. And I'll, I'll say this, some of us, myself included, are just like Jacob here. We know we need God. Whatever the sin is in our life, we know we need to repent. We know we need to do God's will. We know we need to look to Him. We know we need to search the Scriptures. We know we need to repent and believe. But we are so stupid and stiff-necked and stubborn that we want to give it one more try our way. This is for Christians too, by the way. You just want to try one more time my way. Which is insane! Right? Like, why would we think that this time will go well without God's blessing Whenever we know we need God's blessing. It doesn't make sense. That is the heart of sin, I might add. Sin makes no sense. It's the epitome of being illogical. I'm going to go hard against God who is omnipotent, omniscient, omni, omni. I'm going to run against him as hard as I can and see how this works out for me. Stupid. But though he is trying his own way, Jacob still finds himself terrified. Because there's no peace in his own way, is there? He knows he's going to face Esau tomorrow, and nothing he is trying to do seems to work. I see in this, God is graciously making, grace, this is a gracious thing that God would do this to Jacob, because he is making Jacob aware that Jacob is powerless and needs God in a very personal way. It's like almost as if God is removing, by trial, this nominal faith. So this should stand as a reminder to us that God will get our attention. He can cause the world to crash down around us in order to bring us to a place where we will see how much we need him. And I would argue not not all of our trials are punishment. Not all of our trials are even discipline. But I would argue that everything we go through is God trying to remind us that we need him above all. Everything. Every trial. He wants us to see how much we need Him, which is grace to us. It's so that we would repent and know this, that God is for us when He does these things. He's not doing this because He's a hateful God. He does this because He knows He's the only thing that's satisfying. He's the only thing that actually brings joy, and He's making you ridiculously aware of that. So just shotgunning this out, right? Just pray, like spray and pray. I've been playing Battlefield, right? So we just spray and pray on this one. Have you ever considered... That maybe things aren't working out how you expected or planned because God is making you aware that you are wrong and that you need Him. Just consider your life on that for a second. Whatever's going wrong, have you considered that? God is graciously showing you that you need Him. And yet many of us still fight Him. We keep trying to live our way and control our lives. So believer, I just want to lay this before you. Save yourself some heartache and stop. God is humbling you. Unbeliever, save yourself eternal destruction. God is humbling you. But in order to humble Jacob and make him realize his helplessness and bring him to repentance, God goes to him that night and wrestles with him. Like I said, I'd argue that this is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ And what I want to do is I want to look at, just point by point, this wrestling match. And try to point out that this physical fight reveals a lot of spiritual truths for us. First thing in this, God initiates the match. Jacob didn't go to God saying, hey, let's throw down. (laughs) God initiates this match. Listen to me. God is going to convert Jacob through this wrestling match. Hear me. God always initiates conversion. No sinner goes looking for God on his own. If you're here and you're an unbeliever and you're you're starting to question, you know, like, what does Christianity offer? Who who is this God of the Bible? That's the Holy Spirit working uh, to draw you to him. No unbeliever comes on his own. God always initiates everything. 
We're dead in our sins. We're dead in our trespasses. God must do an act in us. We do not initiate our salvation. Consider this. Jacob is probably not thinking of God this evening, right? He's sitting by this river. He's thinking, what am I going to do with Esau? He's just worrying and scheming. And then Jesus shows up to change him, which is how God converts sinners in the midst of our sin. He just shows up to us in order to change us. And then Jacob starts to fight him, trying to prevail over God. Now, I want you to consider this for a minute. You know how you get on your knees in order to wrestle like a toddler, right? That's basically what Jesus is doing to Jacob here. Jacob is trying to prevail against Jesus, and Jesus allows the struggle. Consider the grace here of Jesus Christ shown to Jacob. Instead of just killing the sinner, instead of just killing him, God or Christ gets down on his level and says, Hey, man, let's, we'll wrestle this out. That's the grace of Jesus towards sinners, is that he would allow us to struggle against them for a time and not strike us down for doing so. He's a gracious and merciful God. But nevertheless, Jesus shows his power over Jacob. <laughs> he dislocates his hip. And I'll just laying this out there just to show you the omnipotence of God over Jacob here. The Hebrew means like, like a love tap. right? He didn't like push hard and dislocate it. He's like popped him on the hip, dislocates it. This, I think that Jesus, in doing this to Jacob, is teaching him something profound. He's teaching Jacob his utter helplessness without him. You have no strength here. I can wipe you out with a touch to your hip. What power do you really have over your own life if I can do this to you? Am I not the one who has ultimate control over everything? Am I not the one that you need? Should you not be seeking me instead? You know, Jesus Christ, in, in the Gospel of John, tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. I think he's teaching that to Jacob by touching his hip and dislocating it. And then Jacob then realizes whom he is fighting. Right? Once he sees the, the supremacy and the power of this God in his own weakened state, he begins to realize that he needs God more than his own way and his own strength. Right? And what does he cry out? He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And what I think Jacob is getting at there, and, and, and just me dumbing it down for myself, I need you more than I need anything else. I will not let you go until you bless me. I have to have you. I will not live another day without you. I need you to bless me. I need you more than anything. And then the match is over. The struggle is over. There's no more wrestling match. But Jesus asks him his name. Now hear me on this. We talked about Jacob's name and what it means. Jacob gives his name whenever Jesus asks it from him. I think that this is Jacob repenting. Who are you? He cheats. I'm a wretch. Who are you? I am, I am garbage. I'm a cheat. I'm a crook. I'm a scoundrel. I think he's repenting here. So he acknowledges, I need you more than anything, and I am wretched. And then what does Jesus do? Does Jesus proceed to twist his head off his shoulders? No, Jesus says, no, you're not anymore. <laughs> What's your name? Jacob. Not anymore it isn't. Your name is Israel now. He renames him. Jacob isn't Jacob anymore. We're going to get into this in just a second. He's a different person altogether now. And then Jesus says, you have prevailed. You have struggled against God and you have prevailed. How did he prevail? Jesus clearly won the match whenever he dislocated his hip. How did he prevail? He prevailed by admitting his need for Jesus. That's what ended the match, isn't it? He prevailed by admitting his need. And then Jesus spares Jacob's life, which is a reminder to us that repentance and faith results in pardon for sin. That God no longer holds what we've done against us anymore. And then, I didn't read this, but in chapter 33, Jacob erects an altar. After this experience, wrestling with Christ, he erects an altar called El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of of Israel. After he has this encounter with him and he realizes his need, God becomes his God. And then Jacob walks away with a limp. Jacob walks away with a limp. He has a living reminder now of his need for God, a constant reminder of the need for humility before his God, that apart from this God, he is utterly helpless and weak. So I see four things, and I'm going to hit them short because I know we've been doing this for a while. I recognize that. Four quick things for us from this text. Right? And these are things uh, for us to consider and let weigh on us and cause repentance in us and at the same time cause joy 
in us because that's God's aim in his people is that he would become their joy. First one is this. Our faith must be our own. Your faith must be your own. Not your father's, not your friend's, not your siblings, not your churches. In Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is he saying? Your faith must be personal. Your faith must be yours. It must be ours. We all personally, individually need Christ's salvation and direction. You need converted personally by God. So don't deceive yourself if you're only a nominal believer. God must be your God. And the Bible says faith without works is dead. Genuine repentance and faith results in works. It results in a changed life. Read 1 John. He gives you a lot of like litmus tests for what a believer is. And how he says, brothers, I write this to you so that you may know that you're in Christ. So measure yourself against the Bible. And you're going to fail and it's not going to be perfect. But if you're, are you striving for those things? Are you striving for godliness? Are you striving to love God and love your neighbor? Are you striving to kill sin? Are you walking in darkness? 1 John says, first chapter of 1 John says, if anyone claims to be in fellowship with God and yet walks in darkness, he is a liar. Don't fool yourself because God won't be deceived. And just claiming faith in Christ means nothing to him. There will be a lot on the last day that say, Lord, Lord, And Jesus is going to say, get out of my face. I didn't know you. But in order to come to that possession of that faith, we must humble ourselves before God. Period. James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you or He will raise you up. So we need to come to a conscious realization that in every situation we need God's blessing and we need not live in our own strength. Rather, we need to live in God's grace by laying down our will and drawing near to Him. We draw near to Him in repentance and prayer and faith. We need to realize that our way only leads to destruction. But in letting go of our lives, we will find life. Like Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Third thing for us is this humility and this repentance before God. And rejoice over this if you're a Christian. If your faith is yours, if God is your God, and you've humbled yourself before Him, and you've drawn near to Jesus, your, God's work in you to cause you to be humble and repent and put your faith in Christ results in a new name for you. Hear me on this. You're different now. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're a believer, if you have believed the gospel, that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, that you couldn't live in your place, that he died a death that you deserve, that on the cross he suffered the wrath of God as a substitute in your place, that he was raised from the dead for your justification. If you believe those things, you have been born again because only people who have been born again can believe those things. God has done a work in you to change you and you are no longer who you once were. To paraphrase the King James Version, the old man is dead. He's been crucified with Christ, like Paul says in Galatians. The old you has been crucified along with Christ. You're no longer who you once were. You are now in Christ, 
actually, according to the apostle. Right? You are a rebel made a son. And glory to God, he doesn't hold your past against you anymore. You've been made new. Though you may fail in your obedience to God from here on out, you are still Israel. You're never Jacob again. Because I know a lot of us are cool with like, well, God, yeah, God doesn't hold my past against me. What about my present and my future? Hear me on this. A personal example. I used to be dowdy, right? Go with me on that. I used to be dowdy. That's what, that's what I went by whenever I was an unbeliever, whenever I was an atheist, whenever I was a blaspheming, drunken whore. Right? That's what I went by was dowdy. Now I'm David. And I'm not excusing any of my thoughts that I have or any of my actions that are sinful. But now as David, I may do something that, that Dowdy would have done. But God still looks at me and says, you are David. Do you see what I'm saying there? You're Israel now. If you're a believer, you may do something that Jacob would have done. But God still says you are Israel. Fourthly, walk with a limp. Jacob had a constant reminder of his need for God. Just like he had that reminder, likewise, we need to be constantly reminding ourselves of our utter desperation apart from Christ. Never forget who you once were. The Apostle Paul always talks about who he used to be, but by God's grace, he's not the same. Never forget what a mess you are without Christ. Consciously remind yourself of your need for God's direction in all areas instead of your own. And then rejoice over God's mercy given to you in Christ and that you are not that person anymore. Make yourself aware. So unbeliever, I'll wrap it up with this. A couple things and a quote. Unbeliever, you are living independently from God. If your faith is not in Christ, you are a rebel against him. The Bible demands, God demands, you repent of your sin and know your helpless state before a holy God and look to Christ crucified in your place, suffering what you deserve and believe that God will make you a new creation and he will. Repent and believe. Believer, if you've been living in your own strength in some area, repent. Whatever it is, repent. Even if it seems small, repent. Know your need for God's direction and blessing and seek it and live His way by His grace. I'll leave you with a quote from the Puritan Jonathan Edwards. A truly humble man is sensible of his natural distance from God of his own dependence on him, of the insufficiency of his own power and wisdom, and that it is by God's power that he is upheld and provided for, and that he needs God's wisdom to lead and guide him, and God's might to enable him to do what he ought to do for God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being good to us and giving us your word and being gracious towards sinners. Sinners like us, thank you for renaming us Israel. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would press on us and cause us to repent. Holy Spirit, draw an unbeliever to you with this gospel message and break the hearts of the believers that are here so that we might stop living in our own strength and begin to do your will and seek you out and that you would be our God. And Father, we thank you for what Christ has done on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.